Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Hey, some of you never come to third hour. What happened? Rainy day, you slept in. I get you. I'm with you. Hey, welcome to Christ Church. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Uh, we're going to be looking at that today. If you're visiting, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the uh, ministers here at the church, and we're glad you joined us. Let me tell you where we're at in this series so you know how to join in with us. Uh, this is a 13-week series through the book of Romans. We're in week 11. As we conclude our study, we've been talking about this being one of the most destructive books in all of the Bible. Destructive in that it blows up your ideas that aren't biblical. Shows you how we're saved and what we're saved for. It shows you that all the important things have been done by God, not by us, and that God's love and mercy is what led him to do all of it. And by learning that, we, it takes a lot of pressure off of ourselves to perform to satisfy God. Instead, it allows us to, to give to God out of the love and mercy he gave to us. And as we've studied that, we're in a section where Paul goes uh, and begins to talk about this concept of unity, as Isaac introduced a little bit earlier. A unity that destroys all societal, educational, economic standards of the world, all the gender issues and ethnic issues that exist, that this unity that we're called to have in Christ supersedes all of those divisive or dividers that we have in our world. So if we're going to talk about unity, we need to be really aware of one another that unity is hard work. Unity doesn't happen naturally or easily because without attempting to give you offense, let me just say what I believe, all of us are selfish at our core. So because we're selfish at our core, it's difficult for us to choose others over and above ourselves. And so Paul begins to talk to us about unity when it comes to moments of disagreement. So as we begin, let's just talk about the evitability of differences of opinion. And so when we disagree, I'm not talking today, and I want to be crystal clear at the beginning, I'm not talking today about whether or not you and I disagree what the Bible says. I'll, I'll go to my grave quoting Dr. Timothy Keller, who says, the Bible is very clear in what it says. We just, as a culture, don't believe it's relevant anymore. So it's not a matter of whether it's clear. It's whether or not we think it applies. So we're not arguing about what the Bible says. We're not arguing about who Jesus is. We're not disagreeing on the core fundamental elements of belief. What happens when we disagree on secondary issues? things that aren't important to the big topics but are matters of opinion. And because we're who we are, even in the church, we're going to have disagreements. So what does the Bible teach us about those inevitable differences of opinion? Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. You don't know how much I want to preach on that verse. (laughs) But I need to move on. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's an interesting passage of scripture. I want to take two expressions that Paul's going to use here today, and I want to put them in their context. 
The first one is someone who is weak in the faith or some translations, a weaker brother. Okay? What that does not mean is that they're not a Christian. What it simply means is that they struggle with grace being enough. They struggle that the work Jesus did was sufficient. So in light of all of this, what we hear is a weaker brother is someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is enough and tries to add rules and regulations to their existence to protect them. A stronger brother is not a super Christian. It's not a superior person. It's just someone who understands grace and lives in the freedom that Jesus has given them effectively. That's how Paul uses those interlocking terms or interchangeable terms here with one another and how they interact. So having said that, we can proceed that what Paul is telling us here is that there were some, because they were Jewish, were very fastidious about the food they ate. They were very careful Because the Old Testament law said if you ate meat sacrificed to idols, and so there were some that because they didn't know where the meat in the marketplace came from, and it could have been offered at a a sacrifice to a pagan god, that they chose not to participate and eat meat. And that was fine. And there were others who basically concluded a steak's a steak's a steak, and they ate it. And you would say, well, both are probably okay and right. We could go, yeah, it's okay. It's just a matter of opinion, right? Except in the church, it was a problem. Because those who wouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols began to judge those who did. And those who ate meat, no matter where it came from, began to feel superior toward those who said they shouldn't. And then we had a problem. We have a problem of two issues. And those two issues are simple. Criticism and contempt. Those that disagreed became critical. And not only did they become critical, they began to show contempt to the value of the person they disagreed with. And I know that doesn't happen in our day, does it? Just take politics. Criticism and contempt. It abounds, even in the public discourse. And Paul says we can't have it in the church. You're not more superior to someone because you disagree with the way they choose to live. If it's not a primary issue of the faith, and we'll talk about that later, If it's a secondary issue, it will always be a secondary issue. Even if you believe and are 100% convinced that these choices aren't good for them, it's a secondary issue. And Paul teaches us how to deal with it. So instead of simply saying, those who celebrate a holy day and those who don't, those who eat meat sacrifice to idols and those who don't, those who do X and others only do Y, The easiest way for us in our world today is just separate them. We'll put them on the opposite sides of the aisle. We'll put all these people who believe this over here, and we'll put all these people who don't believe that over here, and we'll just tell them, stay away from each other. Or as my dad used to do very quickly, if you can't get along, go to your rooms. We had bunk beds, Dad. That wasn't the best method. Scott and I share a room. Anyway, so the method of just dividing and conquering and keeping them away from each other, Paul says, no, there is a better, more spiritual method to to dealing with divisions than isolation or independence. It's love. So, how do we discern the essentials? Here's three things Paul tells us to do when you and I have differences of opinion. Number one, believers are to act out of conviction. What you do is an act of worship. And the things that you're choosing need to be in response to Jesus, not in response to anybody else. Verse 6. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. Let me pause right here. I'm going to use an expression a few times this morning. This is where I get it. It's not about me, it's about we. None of us are isolated. We're, we're, we're living in unity, and we're living together for the cause of Christ, right? Church, isn't that what we're here for? Yeah. So it's not about me. It's not about what, if I get what I want. It's about we. What's best for all of us may not always be best for one of us. And so we have to look at this. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. What Jesus did to the cross and the resurrection puts us all on equal ground. There's no superiority and there's no contempt allowed. We love and live for the purposes together. And so whether we live or eat or breathe or sing or dance or do whatever is your opinion, it should be done to the Lord. It should not be done so that others think well of you. Notice what he says here. So that your conviction matters. If you have a conviction that this is inappropriate for me and it's inappropriate for my soul, then you are correct. For you it is. And in those moments, you're to live that out to the glory of God. Not to feel superior over those who disagree and not to be pressured by those who would disagree with you to do what they want you to do so that you'll be like them. We don't live for man, we live for God, amen? So let your convictions be your convictions. Secondly, believers are to cease criticism. This is found in verses 10 through 13. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, remember when Paul uses therefore, specifically intentionally in the book of Romans. He's just established the biblical truth and now he's showing us how to live it. So he's just told us that we'll all be judged by God alone, in and of ourselves, in our own faith, in our own worship, in our own relationship with Jesus. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Sometimes our criticism is actually nothing more than pseudo-righteous responses. We criticize someone who does something we don't think they should do. But the problem is, as believers, that is a sin when we criticize and we're talking to the person who's not the problem. It is slander and gossip that kills the church. The reason divisions come is we talk to everybody but the person who we should talk to. If you have a problem with the brother, Matthew 18 says you go to them. There's even a passage in Matthew where Jesus told him, before you bring your sacrifices into the temple... Leave your sacrifice, drop it, and go make right with your brother or sister before you come bring a sacrifice. So it's the criticism is the issue. Who are you talking to about your concern? If you're talking to someone who's not the problem, it's a sin. If you're talking to the person you have a problem with, it could be a loving act of edification for both of you. So Paul directs us. Our judgmental attitudes are not acceptable, so don't make fun of people who don't agree with your secondary position. Thirdly, believers need to honor the other point of view. It's quite interesting, Paul, here, in Romans 14, 14, about the other's point of view. He says, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in himself. Paul said, here's my opinion on it. I think it's all okay. Let's eat bacon. (laughs) 
But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. Paul doesn't say, I'm right and you're wrong. Paul says, I understand your position and I'll give you your position and I'd ask you for the same grace to give me my position. Because this isn't a matter of who Jesus is. This is a matter of how you and I individually choose to worship and honor him. Make sense? And you'd think that adults of maturity would look at this text and go, enough said. But we're not including myself as mature as we ought to be, are we? So sometimes we go from opinion to law. You see, because some people could say, Michael pointed this out, Michael DeFazio pointed this out to me this morning. Some people could go back to the Old Testament and say, see, it says you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. But under the New Covenant and post-Acts chapter 9, where the blanket came down and God said, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. You could say, well, the Bible says in the Old Testament, but in the entirety of the narrative of Scripture, there are many moments that you and I make doctrines what are simply silent moments of Scripture. God has not told us not to do that or to do that. It's up to our freedom in Christ to do those things. And so we must honor those and we must allow people to disagree. You see, from a biblical, purely biblical point of view, it is not possible to argue from the everyone must abstain position. You have a conviction about certain things. And I have a list of them. Some of them scare me to death. Because if I name some of these that people have made doctrines that really are silent moments of scripture, you would turn that into, oh, that's, that's the week Mark told me where I could do this. And you'd miss my point. You see, whether the thing that you're feeling a conviction on is not right for you, We have the tendency to make it not right for anybody else. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't step into the role of God here. For instance, you can pick a subject matter. Some of them are big ticket items and some of them I'm too scared to say. You can mention alcohol. You can mention dancing. You can mention several other things I've been forbidden to do. They're censored here. Don't say these things, Mark. says right there. So I'm going to pick one that's pretty... Mediocre, But it was an issue growing up. And what I'm about to say is not disparaging those who disagreed with me, but I didn't understand it. You see, when I went to Bible college in 1983, I didn't know until I went to Bible college that Christians don't play cards. I didn't realize that. I had to go back and tell my dad, who's an elder in the church, who taught me to play euchre, that he's a sinner and needed to repent. And he had led me to the path of hell. Because playing cards leads automatically to gambling, which leads to every other vice, and then before you know it, you're killing people. No. No, no, no. You can't do that to one another. Now, you may be sitting in here today with the conviction that you shouldn't be playing cards. Then here's what I'm going to tell you. Then please don't play cards. I'm not trying to convince you, but I'm also asking you to show me the grace that I don't have the same conviction you have. So I probably won't invite you to my house to play euchre. And I probably won't expect you to invite me over for anything. But at the end of the day, that came out a lot meaner than I meant it. But your conviction is true. It's real. It's just. And my conviction is the same. And so instead of us being divided over that, Because look at what churches have done. Are you with me why this is more than important? Churches have divided over every tiny little thing. What music we play, what kind of music, what kind of instruments, whether we have instruments, when do we meet, at what time do we meet, what do we do when we meet, who gets to talk on stage, who gets to baptize people. We have divided over all of these seasonings that don't matter. Is Jesus Christ Lord of all? That's important. 
These techniques, they're optional. They're simply matters of opinion. May God forgive us for the times we've turned our opinions into doctrines. Here's why. Second point of the morning. The imperative is for peace, not just for a lack of conflict. And I've been asked to explain this further than the statement. You see it there. What Paul is asking us for is to live at peace with one another. And peace is not defined as just not fighting. Some of you may say in your home right now, in your marital relationship, we're at peace with each other. No, you're just not talking to each other. You've been sitting on the same argument for three weeks and you don't know how to solve it. That's not peace. Peace is when you're striving for each other, not striving against each other. So Paul is not asking us to act like we're unified. Paul is saying, do the work to be unified. Let's begin in verse 15. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother from whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Did you notice that text? Hold on to that text. It's crucial in understanding this. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Paul's definition, the strong person is the one who lives in the freedom of Christ and doesn't add things to himself to save himself. So if you choose not to drink alcohol or you choose to drink alcohol, the question is not if you do, the question is why you do. Is it a part of your relationship with God? Is it a part of what's better for you and your family? Is it a part of what's better for the body? And those who do, Paul says, don't rub it in the faces of those who don't. Don't make it a test of fellowship. Don't judge them for doing it or not doing it. And if you don't do it, judge, don't judge those who do. Now, if they overstep those things and it turns into sinful behavior and it takes them away from the presence of the Lord, speak to them in love and mercy. Don't sit in superiority and judgment. It's the passage Paul teaches. He says, we have differences of opinion. Why are we focusing on the things we differ on instead of the things we're unified in? And that's the question. Now, some may read this, and I have as well, read this and go, well, Paul says, we each got the right to live within our freedom, but then he says, don't do anything that causes somebody else to stumble or fall. And some of us know this. There are moments in our lives, whether we're in the church or we're a part of this, that some people like to play the professional weaker brother. Where they simply say, I don't like you doing that, so that causes me to stumble. Stop it. That's immature, and that's unloving, And that's unacceptable. That's why Paul says, keep your convictions between you and the Lord. Make it an act of worship between the two of you. And don't make it a test of fellowship. We're not to judge whether someone's in heaven or hell. And we cannot know the intents of a person's heart. The Bible teaches that clearly. So we are to show the same grace and mercy that we received. That's why in verse 19, 
Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Last week we learned in Romans chapter 12 that we are obligated to love one another. That's the one debt we owe everybody, love. So, having concern for the building up of the brother and for my own fulfillment, choosing we over me. Choosing to say there will be times that I will say to my freedom, I'm not going to practice my freedom because it may cause someone who's weak and stumbling. I've had conversations with people in this church that are recovering alcoholics that wish that nobody in this church would ever touch alcohol. I understand where they're coming from, don't you? But they've also shown the same grace to say some people may not struggle with it as I have. And I love their mercy and grace even though they are scarred by their own experience. They're choosing the we and the power of the spirit over the me. Now this one up here on the screen, it hit me this morning as I was brushing my teeth and thinking through my message. It's like I need to define somehow if I'm going to say that these secondary issues are just that secondary, then how do we address what's important? And I'm going to give you a passage if you'd like to write it down, if you take notes. I'd like you to write down Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. And I, I challenge you, even if you're not taking notes today, to go home this afternoon and read Ephesians 4, because I don't want you to trust me. I want you to see it in the Bible and realize that I am showing you what I believe the scripture is teaching. In Ephesians 4, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing. Living with each other in differences. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Those are non-negotiables. Listen to what they are. There is one body. There is one universal church. There is one Holy Spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord Jesus. There is one faith in him. There is one baptism and one God. Everything else is secondary. If we can agree on those, and we can hold each other to the truth of those, then we can disagree on styles of worship and places to worship and times to worship and who talks and who doesn't and who baptizes and who doesn't and how we take the Lord's Supper. We can disagree on all of those things and you and I still can be brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Because if you hold to the most important things, the opinions sort themselves out over time. And yes, one may be right and one may be wrong, but we're still family. And so we're challenged. Some believers are not prepared to allow for differences. But until you become God, let the scriptures rule. Let the Holy Spirit guide. I trust that the Holy Spirit brings better conviction than I can bring on you. And so we trust the word, we seek it in prayer, and that's one of the best things you can do. If you're in a relationship with someone right now and you differ on what it says, I'd encourage you to pray together before you judge one another. And truly seek what the, what the Bible teaches. We must allow for differences and avoid division. And then Paul brings us into Romans 15 where he encourages us with good words of why and where we get our strength to be able to do this. Verse one. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He says, choose to do what is good for them, to build them up. Don't just sit and make fun of their weakness. Don't diminish them because they have this area that they're struggling in the grace and mercy and they don't know how to live in freedom. Don't judge them for that. It's like the equivalence. I was looking for equivalencies and saying, okay, so what is this like in everyday life? And here's what I thought of. It's seeing Heather, my wife, get out of bed at 2.30 in the morning to sit with one of our sick boys for two or three hours when what would have been best for her individually was to stay in bed and get some sleep because she had to work tomorrow. But her love, led by her mercy, spent the night with her son, nurturing him and loving him and helping him grow. And then I think of a father. And I'm sorry if that's too gender specific. I'm trying to balance the room. I'm thinking of a father who works a second job at the expense of his own comfort and leisure and rest to provide for his family what they need because the children can't work and can't provide for themselves. Are you with me, church? It's that love that looks at someone you disagree with and says, even if I do feel that you're not correct in this, I'm gonna love you anyway because that's what Jesus did to me while I was a sinner. He loved me and was in community with me and supported me and encouraged me. If I can sum that all up this way, I would say this. You're not called to acquiesce to the person who wants to control you by their weakness. Nor are you to use your superior freedom, if you will, to look down on them for not being free. Sometimes God calls us to grow up and sometimes God waits for us to catch up, right? Sometimes God tells us to grow up and sometimes he waits for us to catch up. He's patient. He's loving. If you're a parent, you know exactly what that means. There are moments you tell your children, you will absolutely not do that. I know better than you. You will not do that. That's not acceptable. And you stop them immediately. And other times you look at them and you think these thoughts. They'll learn. If a child runs into a wall, the wall's never going to move. You can say, don't do that. Boom. (laughs) You'll learn. It's after the fourth time you get them help. But the first two or three, you're like, eh, no one died of a bruise. Sometimes God tells us to grow up, and sometimes he waits for us to catch up. And I think when it comes to differences, we need to pray for the wisdom to choose one of those two. For the sake of the good of everyone involved. Romans 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So the challenge is let love rule. Even when you vehemently disagree with the course a person takes in their freedom, there's nothing wrong. Now listen to me carefully. There's nothing wrong in challenging their freedom. Just don't judge it. Live in unity and community with them. Live for what's best. Because when we have Jesus Christ at the center of our focus, then we can help someone and edify them and maybe even correct them. But when Jesus isn't the focus, when I'm the focus, when my opinions and the way I want things done, whether it's something as as minor as dancing or as minor as playing cards, or something that really convicts you strongly, like liquor, or, or cigarettes, or you name whatever that thing is, and you say, well, that's a lot bigger than this one. Remember, 
when we love them in the mercy of Jesus Christ and the truth of Christ is open between the two of us, is not the Holy Spirit able to correct all of us? But when there's division and it becomes you versus me, there seems to be no room for the Holy Spirit to give testimony. The the world is looking for the church to live out what Jesus prayed on the night he was betrayed when he said, Father, may they be unified as you and I are unified. May they be one as we are one. So the prayer of this church today is that we would live in such a way that the love of Jesus would compel people to understand that the church is God's and not man's. Because when there's division and isolation and we're all doing our own thing, our own way, and we feel superior to anybody who's not doing it our way, it doesn't speak to the unity of the Spirit, to the love and mercy of our God, and it does not give a testimony our world is desperate for. When the church looks like any other social organization, it has no power. When it lives out love, forgiveness, and mercy, it has the power that created the world. And it has the power to bring hope. So today, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, and one God over it all. That's what we stand for. Everything else will work out. And we'll work it out with love, patience, and mercy. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.